on Lumpen Radio. Good morning, everybody. You're listening to I-94 on Lumpen Radio. This is WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This episode is being taped live on May 28th, 2017. I am Jamie Trecker here, as always, with Jeremy Kitchen and Mike Sack. Good morning, gentlemen. Morning, morning Jamie. It's a beautiful day out here in downtown Bridgeport, isn't it? Yes, it is. We have a special guest today. We're going to be joined momentarily by Chad Post. He is with Open Letter Books, which is an initiative of the University of Rochester. We're going to be having a good discussion today about books in translation, uh, all kinds of uh, world literature, and uh, all kinds of fun stuff like that. He is joining us uh, via the magic of the internet and Skype uh, from uh, Boston, I believe. Is he in Boston today? Rochester, Rochester, New York? Rochester is almost like Boston, right? It's it's kind of the (laughs) anti-Syracuse. Is what I know. He's, he's yeah. I've yeah. never been. This old Syracuse boy knows where Rochester sits. Let me tell you. But we want to start on a somber note. Um, we lost a major member of the American literary canon this week, Dennis Johnson, who was the author of the Vietnam novel Tree of Smoke and the collection of short stories known as Jesus' Son, died uh, suddenly of liver cancer. Mm. Johnson was a National Book Award winner. He was a Pulitzer Prize finalist as well. And Jesus' Son uh, made his name. It was a short story collection that uh, really took him onto the scene. Many people did maybe they didn't know it, but uh, that collection of stories actually mined Johnson's own life. He struggled with addiction for a number of years before finally cleaning up. Uh, He suffered from liver cancer, which was a result of his uh, addictions. Uh, Johnson, unfortunately, was just 67 years old. Uh, The only silver lining is Johnson did deliver a new book um, that will come out posthumously in January from Farr, Strauss, and Giroux. Guys, I know Dennis Johnson meant a lot to both of you as as to me as well. He was a major uh, influence on modern American literature. I'd just like to kind of kick this around for a couple seconds. Sure. Well, I'll tell you, Tree of Smoke is one of my favorite novels of all time. Same. And, yeah, it's, you know, finishing that book, it's just, you sit back and you're like, what what just happened? What what did I read? What was, you know, what's real, what's not? And I, I think he was really good at that. And I also had mentioned, you know, I think the hardest, one of the hardest I've ever laughed in literature is when that guy comes in with the steak knife planted at his head in the emergency room in Jesus' son. Uh, I know some people... May not find that funny, but that scene to me was just absolutely. Well, Jeremy and I were were in the bookstore not too long ago, and there was a there was a copy of, I think the only nonfiction book that he put out. Oh yeah, I picked was, up a copy of his essays. Did, yeah, did you read any of those? Uh, I read one about Liberia. Okay. And uh, it was pretty bonkers. You know those. <laughs> I mean, Liberia is a pretty bonkers. <laughs> Liberia is a pretty bonkers place. Yeah. I think that was a setting for his last novel. I forget the name of it. It came out. A Laughing Monsters. Years ago. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Laughing Monsters. Well, Dennis Johnson, again, has died at 67, uh, a major hole in the American literary canon. With that, I want to turn quickly to our subject at hand. Again, we're talking to Open Letter Books, and I want to welcome uh, Chad on. Chad, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Hey, Chad. Hey, Chad. What's up, man? Not much. How are you? Good. So why don't we start at the top? We really should uh, break down what Open Letter Books is first before we uh, go to these giant piles of door-stopping books that we have all <laughs> over our radio station. Desk. Love it. We, we literally have um, between uh, at least 10 books here. So, Chad, tell us a little bit about what Open Letter does and uh, why, you know, th- people might not know why you're in Rochester, but there's a good reason for that because that's where Open yeah. Letter is from. <clears throat> yeah, Open Letter started in 2007 at the University of Rochester where at the university they were planning on putting together uh, programs for literary translation, both for undergraduates and graduate students, 
um, to encourage people to become freelance translators, to learn more about international and world literature. And they wanted there to be a practical component, a press that would be publishing a high quality line of international works to help address the fact that there aren't very many books published in translation in the US and to give students an outlet so they could learn about the publishing industry, could start to get an idea of like how contracts work, how books get um, acquired and edited, how they get published, how they find readers, all that kind of stuff. So 10 years ago, the first book that we published came out in September of 2008. So technically 2018 is our 10 year anniversary year. Um, and that, that first book was called Nobody's Home by Dubrovsky Grushek, um, who's a mostly a essay, personal essay writer, but she also does some fiction and writes a lot about exile and um, she's from Croatia, but has lived in exile for most of her life. Um, and since then, we've been publishing 10 books a year of, high, of literature and translation from all over the world, as best as we can get there. Um, and with a kind of focus on being more innovative, adding something to the literary conversation, something that American writers aren't necessarily doing or that they could learn from or that they could appreciate. And it's it's kind of, I mean, it's grown quite a bit over those, over those 10 years, but that's the core, that's the open letter part of it. We also have like a website called 3% that does a lot of like activism for engaging people and readers with the ideas of international literature and trying to expand the readership for these sorts of books. And that's home to like the Best Translated Book Award, which you can get into, the translation database, um, a lot of things that are more geared towards trying to educate and to inform people and be a more altruistic end of the spectrum of what we're doing. Tell us why that's called 3%, Chad. Is I, It's 3% of books in translation are published in America, right? Is that the... <clears throat> this is, yeah. It's sort of a... Um, it's a statistic that is is difficult to prove and yet feels very true, where for years um, there is a couple different places, Publishers Weekly and Bowker, which tracks all information about book publication, that they came out with studies saying that 3% of the books published in America were originally written in another language. <clears throat> and to put that in perspective, um, every year there's about 200 to 250,000 books published in America. So 3% of those being in translation is a very small number. Um, and we used that, we decided to adopt that as the name of the website because it would be sort of a, I mean, it was obviously for more political reasons of saying, you know, we're only getting access to a, of all the books that were, that are available to us, only a very small portion are from other voices from elsewhere in the world. And this is, you know, this shouldn't be like this. We should be a country that absorbs and is learning from all these other cultures and all the other, these other languages and places. So 3% is like a horrible kind of, um, it, it sort of, it points to the fact that America had become very isolationist in its culture and in the way, especially in its literary community. So that's where it came from. Is the statistic perfect? Probably not. And in the end, I've started to feel like maybe it's not even that valuable, that it's more important to focus on the books that do exist and reading those and finding readers for them instead of trying to change that to 5% or 6%. Mm -hmm. Now, we should break down. I mean, you guys, I think when Americans think about books in translation, uh, commonly we think of books from Russia, but Open Letter publishes a wide variety of books. You publish books from Estonia, Korea, uh, Portugal, Argentina. Israel. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's not a, a monolinguistic group that you're translating. So talk a little bit about the breadth of that. And it, if, is that difficult, actually? It seems like a real challenge uh, to be able to survey <coughs> world literature as a whole um, and not just a, a specific subset. Yeah, it, it sort of is and sort of isn't. Like We've had good connections because of the time that I spent at a different publishing house prior to this, um, Delkey Archive, which some listeners might have heard of. 
Um, I worked there for a number of years, and during that period, um, Delkey expanded into doing a lot of translations. So I ended up going on a lot of editorial trips to places all over the world um, to meet with different editors and publishing houses and translators. And so we've had a pretty good network of people to call upon for recommendations. A lot of countries, like German, Germany um, is, in, is very good at it, but also like France, Korea is, spe is spectacular, Norway, a lot of Scandinavian countries have outlets that are sponsored by the government that are designed to promote their book culture. So they provide translation grants, they provide some sort of marketing support, and they also give you information about books that you might be interested in and can help sort of facilitate that. But what we've generally relied upon, almost not uh, like a lot, like there's a different, few different ways that we get our books sent to us or that we consider them, but translators play a huge role in this. And knowing translators from these different languages they're, if they're good and they're keyed into like our sort of aesthetic, they're very helpful in being able to say, well, here's like four books from, from Finland that might interest you. And here's like why I think they might interest you. And it's for that reason that we've ended up with a lot of things from like Iceland, because there's a really spectacular Icelandic translator, Lytton Smith, who recommends a lot of great stuff to us. We end up with a lot of Spanish language things from all over the world, in part because I'm just fascinated and always have really loved um, Spanish literature. And there's certain other, like Korea has a similar thing where there's different translators that, that are good for sort of hooking you up and giving you that information. But it also is a, somewhat of a detriment in the sense that when we, we don't have someone on the ground or someone that we can rely upon in different languages or countries, we sort of bypass those. So we don't have a lot of African literature. We don't have Indian literature. We don't have very much Asian literature. A lot of it is due to the fact that we just don't have someone that's helping, helping us in that way. Understood. And that's a good, I want to come back to that topic of the translator and uh, talk a little about that because translation is a somewhat controversial topic. Janet Malcolm, as I'm sure you've read, published a polemic in the New York Review of Books called Socks about the current state of translation. I do want to get to that. But since you mentioned Spanish literature, why don't we hear a quick excerpt from your uh, book, Gesseldome, which is a Spanish novel by Guerrero Sacamano. Uh, we have a quick reading from that, and then we're going to come right back. You're listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is I-94. childish ballad a little ditty like a Christmas carol. You can't really understand the words, just the tra-la-la-la-la. They say that when El Muertito sings nearby like that, it's because a child is suffering. Many people can't stand the little ditty. Among them Ramirez, the guy from the locksmiths. He's tough on his kid. Someone said that when Keith acts up, he ties him to a tree out back and lays into him with his belt. It's no picnic to raise a boy by yourself, he grumbles. Lila, the hairdresser, dumped him for being abusive. If she didn't take Keith with her, it was because she took off with a dude and the kid was in the way. She's the one who named him Keith for Keith Richards, a real Rolling Stones fan, that Lila. Tonight Ramirez is about to whip Keith when he hears the tune. Ramirez goes for his 38 and walks out into the night. He starts firing at the sky, but the melody grows closer, louder. When he walks back into the house, Keith is waiting for him with a knife. As soon as Ramirez steps inside, the boy plunges it into his stomach. He leaves him bleeding on the floor. It's only rock and roll, Keith laughs and runs out the door. Ramirez manages to drag himself to the phone and call the hospital. The melody is gone. And that was a reading from Gessel Dome. And we want to credit uh, Jamie Breezy Branch. That's music uh, provided courtesy of the International Anthem Recording Company as well. Chad, did you, uh, was this your book, Gessel Dome? <clears throat> yeah, the way that we found that 
was that it had won the, um, or the translator had received a Penheim translation grant for to work on that. Um, so every year, thanks to Michael Henry Heim, who is a spectacular and amazing translator, he had donated anonymously a significant, significant sum of money to um, Pen America in order to set up an award system to give younger translators or any age of translators, but to support their projects that they were working on that might not have publishers behind them yet. Um, and this has been going on for maybe 10 years. And it was after his death that it was announced that Michael Henry Heim had been this anonymous donor. And there's a really amazing story behind that. But um, this it was a couple of years ago, um, Andrea Lavender, who translated Gessel Dome, she won, received one of these grants. And when, they, when these are announced, they generally have excerpts from all of those books made available or that you can ask for them. Sometimes they're online. Um, but we got the copy of that one. And read it. I read the 20 pages that have been translated and thought that it was amazing. Like this great mix of like John Dos Passos and like something darker and more violent and sort of noir like. And so we uh, contracted her to translate the entire book for us. And she's actually working on another book of his that we're considering right now because he's a I think he's a really interesting author that hasn't quite gotten his due yet. Absolutely. Uh, you know, this and Zone by Enyard are like two of my favorite books of all time. I'm not kidding. I just I read this for the show and I was like so blown away. I'd actually you sent us a copy, but I had already bought this. And um, I said it was like Winesburg, Ohio, written by Jim Thompson. So, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. I've never read the Das Passos USA trilogy, but, um, you know, it, you didn't read that in high school? That's a classic. No, we didn't have to read that. Really? Yeah. That used to be part of the core curriculum. Really? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Dos Passos USA. I Those haven't. Yeah. I haven't. I can't it. imagine that that's true anymore, though. No, if we really? got through Of Mice and Men, we were given a pat on the back and told to go to gym. <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> well, it's like, okay. well, times were weird. But I remember reading The Great Gatsby in eighth grade, and I'm like, what is this rich guy so mad about? You know, because I didn't get it. And then you read it when you're like 30, and you're like, oh, I get it now. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> All right, well, I... Enough about the loss of Dos Passos in our school systems, which is which is heartbreaking. <laughs> Let's get back to Gesseldome here. This is an, I actually want to read that after you're done with it, Jeremy, because yeah, it's an it. interesting, interesting book, though. And it won the Dashiell Hammett Award as well, which is right. unusual for a Spanish novel. Uh, yeah, well, there's multiple Dashiell Hammett Awards is one of the things that's sort of confusing about that. And they all go by the same name, and they're all part of the same sort of international uh, organization, but there's like the Dashiell Hammond Award given up for an American writer, a writer in English, and one for Spanish every year. And there's a couple other. I think there's one for French as well. But they're they're sort of uh, varied by language, but they don't they don't acknowledge that. They just say it's the Dashiell Hammond Award. Oh, how bizarre! Okay, <laughs> which is which is great because it makes it more like egalitarian. Like you can win that award no matter where you are, and not have it be like sort of uh, diminished by being like, oh, well, it was the Dashiell Hammond Award in Spanish or something like that. That's fair enough. Tell us a little more about uh, about this book, Jeremy, because this sounds fascinating. Well, it's 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 a it's a town, and one of the characters is Dante. Um, it's kind of a tour of a hellish villa. Um, it's a tourist town where just everything you know that could go wrong goes wrong. But there's humanity there too. There's intellectualism. There's um, but you know it's it's extraordinarily violent. Um, Chad, my nickname on the show is the Malcontent, so it fit right into my. Uh, they call me the Malcontent, and it, it fit right in, you know, into my, we what we what we call Malcontentedness. <laughs> but you know, the writing, and I'm going to say the B word, Bolaño. But I actually posted on Instagram that this book was better than Bolaño, and I got some. Wow. I got some flack, particularly from uh, Kevin Elliott over at 57th Street Books. Well, which which Bolaño though? Uh, Roberto. 
No, I know, but which uh, book? Oh, I just generalized. I said Ooh. Bolaño in general. So my favorite book by Bolaño is Twenty Six Sixty Six. I think that's a, I think that's a classic. Yeah, a but this is book. a classic too. I'm telling you, man, this is an yeah. underappreciated gem mm-hmm. of uh, you know of Spanish literature. It's phenomenal. Right. I think that's very true. You know, it's interesting. I don't know if you know this, but Guillermo Sacamano lives in Villa Gesell. Like, that is a real place. Oh, um, no, I didn't know that. Not only is it a real place, a lot of the history in there of, like, how it was a haven for um, Nazis that escaped Germany or was founded by one of the Nazis that escaped Germany or, like, helped popularize the town. And the fact that it is, like, a little resort town where during the summer months in Argentina, it's, you know, heavily populated, everyone makes all their money, and then all the tourists go away and you're left with this these people that are uh, occupy Gessel Dome that are trying to make it through till the next tourist season by basically like harming each other mentally, physically, emotionally over and over again, <laughs> as Dante sort of reports on it. But when he wrote that book, he wrote like a version of it. Um, I think he was almost done. I forget how this, how exactly the timeline of the story, but someone broke into his house and stole his laptop, which is included in that book where there's a, oh, yeah, yeah. That has, so that that really happened to him, but thankfully he had saved it that morning on like a thumb drive, and Oof. they didn't steal that. They only stole the laptop. So he was able to like keep his manuscript. But it was like that violence and that sort of like and just overrun with like desperation and desperate criminals. And that seems like that's really that place. <laughs> well, there and that's an interesting part of the story too. There's there's a I guess a landlord that rents his house out, and he has a secret room, and he tells people whatever you do. Don't go in the secret rooms. I think it was some surfers, right? They break right. into the room and they find a bunch of, you know, photos of this guy. And he was, you know, a, an active, high-ranking Nazi. And uh, yep. so there's there's this, like, side narrative about this guy. And, and you know, as we know, a lot of Nazi war criminals escaped to South America. And it's kind of known in town that this guy is the way he is and nothing's really done about it. And then mm-hmm. uh, the story Chad was telling with the laptop theft, the... The kind of the town patriarch who's like, you know, as corrupt as they get, gives Dante a new laptop. He's like, well, this isn't going to work. I need my laptop because it's got all my work on it. But, yeah, there's petty crime. And, you know, there's just a lot of um, it was funny. I read this one review. I can't remember. It was like some hipster literature website. And they were just like, you know, it's so dark. And I'm like, life's dark, man. This is like (laughs) (laughs) You're looking at, uh, you know, a part of the world that's, you know, and I, I know it's it's fiction, but like, you know, bad things happen in the world. And sometimes we have to approach that stuff. And it's kind of a, it's cataloged here. You know, it's uh, and I love I love the writing style. I love the multiple narratives. But I also, you know, there's like some parts that are parts that are reported, you know, like newspaper reportage from that's, Dante. Yeah. Uh, and then you get the newspaper report and then it goes into the details through the, you know, the, the character narratives. And uh, I just. Man, I it's one of those books where I just like I can't wait to get back to it. And, yeah, um, it is great because it is so segmented too, or fragmented in that way where there's different stories that keep interweaving, and it'll uh, one story will be broken up over little passages that have different interspersed stories for like 30, 40 pages. Um, so it's amazing to like sort of piece that together and and see how it all develops. But I also think that there's parts of that book that are incredibly funny. Like there are oh, a yeah. lot of dark things. But within the subtle ways that he uses language and changes the tone of different passages, they become extraordinarily humorous, um, which I really, I thought that was like, adds to it. So it's that it's bleak, it's very bleak, but at the same time, there are those moments of humanity, of people trying to do something good, um, but you know, generally the people in charge just ruin it for all. 
Yeah, and I was going to add that there, there it, it, there's a lot of humor in the book, and there's also a lot of humanity. Um, people, like you said, trying to do the right things, but it's just it's. But it, to me, it's in some ways you can make parallels to you know cities in America. There's a lot of good things going on, but you kind of look at the big picture. But then you're also looking at individual characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's it's like the news here. You know, all you hear about from Chicago is the violence. You know, and then occasionally, yeah. like, oh, there's going to be an Obama museum, but. You know, and so it's kind of it's it would be like coming here, having these narratives from all these people in the city. And then you actually learn a little bit about the city and the culture. It's not you know, it's not just this like repetitive, violent. Uh, I mean, it is. That's why it won the Dashiell Hammond Award, because what, it's repetitive and violent. What I should say, though, is there's more to it than bleakness and, and violence. There's a lot of humanity, and I think a lot of literature's like that, especially when you're writing about a part of the world that's a little bit messed up. So. Well, speaking of parts of the world, we should switch now to Korea and another selection from Open Letter Books. This is, you can hear a reading real quickly from A Greater Music, which is by the Korean author Bae Swa, who I've probably just massacred the poor woman's name. But uh, we're going to hear a quick reading, and then we're going to come back. We're speaking with Chad Post from Open Letter Books. You're listening to WLPNLP Chicago. Beats me why other people make such a big deal out of suicide. Those so-called artists and intellectuals with their books and their plays and their essays, they're just trying to make a point with the kind of stuff they write about. Being artistic is just an excuse for them to kick up a fuss about something or other, something that'll get people talking. Money and fame, that's all anyone's after when it comes down to it. While he was talking, Joachim poured a good slug of milk into his coffee and slathered a thick layer of jam over a slice of cake. Hmm. You must have read a lot about it to make a claim like that. Oh yeah, they made us read all kinds of crap at school, really weird stuff, even though only some of it will come up in the obiter and there's no way of telling what. For example, I had to read this one book called The Tin Drum. You know it? Insanely long and even more tedious than Latin, the kind of thing where you don't have a clue what the hell it's supposed to mean even after you've read the whole thing. And it's all because of the language those writers use. They actually earn money for playing their clever little tricks. I mean, there's nothing wrong with plain German. There's no need to write books like that, the kind that make your mind go blank so you can't think of anything, or that use all these ambiguous words so it's so vague that you can't be sure what any of it means. It's obviously all nonsense, just deliberately trying to confuse you. Beats me why I have to read those sorts of books if I want to become an engineer. I mean, just to put my money in some writer's pocket? There's no other reason. You read Gunter's Grass, The Tin Drum? You? That's right. Can't you understand my German? I explained it as well as I could. I just... I wasn't expecting it, that's all. What do you remember from it? I already told you. Not a single thing. I saw the film, too. It was the worst damn film I ever saw. But weirdly enough, it's popular. Really popular. That guy must be absolutely rolling in it. And that means he must have plenty of women hanging off him, too. Stop talking like an idiot, Joachim. And that was a reading from A Greater Music from the Korean author, Bae Sua. And Chad, please correct me on her pronunciation. We'd like to mask her names on this show. That's actually, the, the only thing that's different is it's, uh, it's Sua, like it's two syllables. But it's Bae Sua. <clears throat> With Sua being her Pretty first close, name. Jamie, not bad. Not bad. All right, I'm bad. Yeah, no, bad not at all. 750. You know, <laughs> Mike, take us through take us through this book. Sure. Uh, before I talk about a greater music, though, Chad, it's Mike. How you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Good. Um, I wanted to mention you. You had said Michael Henry Himes' name, and for listeners 
who are interested in some of the history of translation and how it became a little bit more widespread across universities and programs. Open Letter published a book called The Man Between. It's a great read. Um, I really recommend it to anybody who's interested in, uh, in translation. Um, that passage, I chose that passage because it seemed to echo maybe some of the challenges that you're up against as a, as a smaller publisher, a publisher of books in translation and some pretty difficult books at that. Um, do you, do you get a lot of that Joachim response from, <laughs> from crowds you try to, to market the book to? Uh, sometimes this, this is, yeah, yeah, sometimes. I mean, it is nicely self-selecting that a lot of like booksellers like Kevin Elliott, the aforementioned Kevin Elliott are into international literature and, and read our books and give them a good chance and, and put in the time and effort to understand them, which I don't. I mean, some of them are difficult, I guess, on a scale. But like, I don't, I don't think we we haven't published a Finnegan's Wake quite yet. But um, not that that would be opposed to that. But we haven't quite done that. But there is like a good number of people that, in the general public, when you talk about it, anything that's not the most straightforward or most like cut and dry sort of plot based book um, is sort of off putting to them. I remember being on a radio show once a um, number of years ago when we were talking about Michael Henry Heim of all things. And a, it was a call-in program in Wisconsin Public Radio. And a woman called in after an hour of me and Esther Allen, who's another famous translator, yeah. talking about uh, what you can gain from trying to read books that are somewhat outside of your comfort zone or from another cu culture, so on and so forth. And this woman called in and was like, that's all great, but I'm never going to read any of these books because I can't pronounce any of the names. And it's like, really? Like, you can just, if you can't pronounce the name, you can just make it up or butcher it. It doesn't really make any difference when you're reading it. No one's judging you at that moment. That's a weak reason. So there is some of that. But I think that that's going away considerably. Like, I mean, it it's still seems to be true that even though there are studies claiming that translations sell an outsized proportion of copies compared to books written in English, fiction especially, I don't think that that's necessarily true. I think that those numbers are skewed by Elena Ferrante and Knosgaard. But because of Ferrante, Knosgaard, um, Bolaño, Stieg Larsson, a lot of these people that did um, that were successful and sort of broke into the more the the larger base of literary readers in America, especially. I think that there is like a growing awareness that you can read these books that they're not that off-putting. That it's not. Um, impossible to understand just because they're set in different places and that people are a little bit more open than they used to be 15 years ago. Um, how much that's changed not probably is not that dramatic, but like it, I think it's, I think it, there's a more accepting level, especially among um, independent bookstores and independent booksellers. That's a great point, Chad. And it's a good place. We need to take a quick break to, uh, well, hear from the folks that make this station possible, but we'll be back in about two minutes with more. You're listening to I-94 right here only on Lumpen Radio. And we're back on I-94, Lumpen Radio's Books and Literature show. Just before the break, we were talking about a Korean novel, A Greater Music. Mike, do you want to take us through a little bit about what's going on in this book? Sure, yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I almost regret using that word difficult. But <laughs> but you just did. But I did. Yeah. Um, Some people like, I like difficult books. Well, the thing is, they're... They're not that difficult if you have a desire to, to read books. Um, you know, they're, they're not they're not spoon fed to you. And the way it's not going to be like watching a television program where you sit down for two hours or an hour. 
well, have five you guys, hours if you're binge-watching. Have you seen James Patterson's, like, dumbed his books down now that they have short yep. James Patterson? It's called Book Shorts. Book Shots. Book Shots. Yeah, that's it. Book Shots. Is that like a book slam So dunk? bad. Yeah, and I, as a librarian, I hate James Patterson because so much of our budget goes to him. Because I have a James Patterson section at the library. He doesn't even write his own books anymore. No, right? he doesn't. No, Some of them have four writers. That's awesome. You know? But anyway, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the different things about this book is that it's it's not told linearly. It's uh, you're inside the narrator's head and basically uh, subject to whatever she's thinking. And so she goes through a series of events that's not in sequence. The narrator is anonymous. We never learn her name. She is a student from Korea who's visiting Germany. And that, I don't know how you pronounce that name, Joachim? Joachim, yeah. Joachim? Yeah. Okay. That, I think that's her boyfriend. I'm not really sure. Or her friend. But she is house-sitting for him and watching his dog. And there's a, she has a near-drowning incident. And she has a sort of love affair with a, her German teacher, one of her German teachers, M. She's only described as M in the book. And she kind of bounces back back and forth it's only 125 pages the book 125 27 pages so as much as you can bounce around in that short of a book she does from event to event and it's less about the events that happened and more about um an exploration of <clears throat> what language communicate can communicate what music can communicate <clears throat> and um how she tries to share those things with people in her life. What what we just heard was an example of not being able to communicate it with Joachim. And there, whereas she was able to communicate between uh, music, it seemed like, with, with M. Does that sound right, Chad? Yeah, yeah. I think that there's that... I think she goes to Germany twice. And once she has the love affair with M, which ends very tragically, and then she has to return to Korea. And when she comes back, she's more involved with Joachim... Maybe I see him like maybe he's like sort of a boyfriend, more of like a male uh, close friend right. that had been had known Am and knew about that whole situation. Um, and that's where like things are more she's sort of more distressed because the communication doesn't work as well, even though she's more familiar with the culture and the language at that point. I think that's an interesting point to bring up. You know, one of the challenges of literature in translation is the quality of the translation itself. And mm-hmm. It's interesting reading, uh, you know, I've, I've leafed through about four or five titles, and the translations seem to be fairly decent, uh, but I don't honestly know because I don't read Korean. I don't, I, I read French. I can read some of that. I can read some Spanish. Uh, but how, I guess one of the questions I would have is how can people know that they're actually getting kind of the authentic author's voice in a translated book. I think that's a, a challenge for anybody. I know it's a challenge for a translator, too. Some translators would say the only fealty they have is to the original author, not the new audience in the new language. But how do we, how do we reconcile that? How do we reconcile the fact that we are going to necessarily lose some of the color and the nuance from, say, the original Korean translated into English? Right. Um, this is a, this is sort of like the beginning of one of the classes I teach at the <laughs> university. So you can buckle in for 16 weeks of this if you want. Um, now I'll try and answer uh, as directly as possible. I think so when we get there's a couple of levels to this. When we get in a translation, 
um, there are they come in at varying qualities at times. There are ones that you know that the person the, the, one of the key markers for when we're editing them and that our editor Kaya Stramanis spends a lot of time going through each one of these books when they arrive. One of the key markers for when you can tell a translation is a translator has a feel for the style of the original is when it gets away from just simply conveying information in a way that is almost tone deaf to the American audience that what we're really trying to capture is the style. What makes that book unique? It's not so much what the story is so much as how it's told and the way in which different literary elements come to play within the text itself. And when you're reading a bad translation, you can usually pick up on it quicker than you think you can. And the more that you work with it, like if you've done it for you know a number of years, you can immediately go into a translation and be like, oh, this person's focusing on just, just translating over the meaning of these sentences and ignoring all the things that make this an interesting book. And so the editorial process becomes more focused on how do you recapture that? What questions are you asking the translator to get them to readjust their writing expectations to be able to convey something that makes this book unique and meaningful. Um, and so what you're getting as a, as at the end as a reader isn't necessarily the word-by-word word similarity to the original. Like that, that would be kind of weird and probably not that interesting, but that you are capturing what made this book function in its original, what made it special in its original. That's the thing that we want to get into English and to be able to present to American readers. So you read something and you say, Man, this is this is a feat of writing, and that takes a translator who can both understand the language and its original, and understand the nuances of that they have to be a really good reader to know like what to pay attention to, what's important to focus on, what's going to be like manipulated in the process over as it makes its way into English, and then be a really good writer where they know how to do certain tricks that writers know how to do that like someone who's just a, a com like a computer would never figure out like the like the various subtleties and the way in which you convey things and put words in certain sequences, choose certain certain words to add to like various motifs and to pick up on themes. They have to be able to do that. Um, and that that takes a lot of practice. But like I, like I say, by reading a lot of these books and by working with them on, on such an intimate level, it becomes way easier than you think it does. It's sort of like, like if you were uh, into poetry and you read a lot of poetry, you can pick out what's good or bad about a poem really quickly. And we can sort of do that with the translation as well, even if you can't read the original language. Like, um, like, uh, well, I shouldn't use any very specific examples. There, um, <laughs> I won't use any, I will use an example that is un, I will not attribute this to anyone, but there was a book that came in not too long ago in which a lot of times that the, the author would move into a more abstracted sort of general realm of writing, the, the translation fell apart. It became essentially just a series of nouns and words that weren't connected to one another as if the, the translator didn't understand what that author was saying. So like the ability to write in like this abstract way and to get at these larger concepts was beyond that translator's capability in relation to that book. And you could hone in on that and try and rework it and try and figure out what is, what is actually going on. And with the back and forth of the translator, which can take weeks and weeks of trying to figure out like what what this should be and how this should be conveyed to try and capture that that style and that's what's really important about it but you can you can notice it pretty quickly if you work with the books a lot 
Well, my goal is to kick off a literary feud on the show, Chad. So whenever you're ready, you start dropping bombs and get it rolling. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, of course, there is a feud in the translation community. I did mention Janet Malcolm's article uh, about Russian translations done by a husband and wife team, which have uh, roiled people. And I'm sure you might have opinions on that. The, the translations yep. are, are known for being dry. I'd love to hear what you're about the pacifization of, of Russian literature. I'd love your take on that. So here's, a, here's the thing that I do for my class every year. Um, I teach a class on world literature and translation, and one of their first assignments, their first assignment, is that they get three um, versions of Master and Margarita by Mikhail Bulgakov, and um, they are translated by three different people, including the husband and wife team that you, that you referenced, and they have all the markers have been removed, so the students don't know who translated what, they just know it's the same chapter of the same book. Um, and they have to read the three, analyze which one they would prefer to publish given the choice between the three of them and like why the other ones are flawed. And to date, zero people have ever chosen the Pavir and Volokansky one because it is wretchedly bad. Like it's stilted, it's loaded, it uses, they use a, the in that book in particular, they, have, they use footnotes as a crutch to explain the fact that they can't translate things very well and that they don't get at any nuances or don't get at any, any of the right sort of um, meanings that you could convey within the book itself. Instead, they're just like footnote everything. So I think in the first chapter of that book, there's 49 footnotes. It's like eight pages. Um, and their, their language is very oddly stilted. And I know that like their process is one of uh, where she translates a trot from Russian. He rewrites it because he doesn't know a lot of Russian. Then they go back and forth and sort of get to the main point of it. And I've, I've never found their translations to be very satisfying. I haven't read their Huge War and Peace retranslation, which some people really like um, for its like fidelity to endless repetition that exists in the original. But I feel like they have like um, they do have an aesthetic to their translation. And it is this weird sort of like keeping one, keeping the repetition, keeping the words that were there in the original that's to hammer them home without without adjusting to different, like a larger context of the aesthetic, they tend, to, they tend to just focus on like the line by line, word by word basis. And I think sometimes a lot of th- things sort of come off dry or stilted in their translations that say like um, Marion Schwartz, who's a very good Russian translator, yeah. she doesn't have that problem. And she's translated some of the same books they have and hers tend to read much more interestingly and get more at like what the art of that book was and not just this like weird, almost mechanicistic um, approach to the translation. There, I dropped a bomb for you. Boom! <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like the footnotes in the in the Pevier and Volokonsky translation. Well, you're I a David Foster Wallace so. fan, too, so... Well, <laughs> you yeah. like a lot Those of footnotes. These footnotes were fun. And these are footnotes yeah. that are supposed to explain things. And, like, I can... I can just, I can't... The book's at my office, but, like, if I grab that, you can just pick out, like, any number of them, and it'll be, like, um, the name of like a river and it's like this river has its name from 1950 or from 1854 in which this thing happened you're like what does that have to do with this story like <laughs> literally nothing well, well, like Chan- you're just giving me you're just wikipediaing this reading experience well Mike likes to ask questions that are unanswerable he'll be like oh you know he was asking he's certain questions he'll say like well, why is the sky blue? And I'm like, I don't know, Mike. So, I mean, maybe he, he says Google to... it is what he says. I always say, Mike, there's this it's thing because called of the Google. refractory index of light in our yeah. atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. I need to That's hang why out with we'll see. Jamie, Jamie knows it. Jamie can answer all your questions. I, I'm Jamie's not, my new mentor. I'm he not does. very well educated. <laughs> so, <laughs> on that subject, we need to hear another reading because we've got to get. You know, you sent us all these books, Chad, and you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> thank you, Chad. Yeah, thank you so much. No uh, this is a reading from the invented part, another uh, Spanish book, um, and kind of a. Um, 
I don't know if I would call it a satire, but definitely kind of a, a farce by the author Rodrigo Frazon. Let's hear a quick reading from that. A library of books covered in dust. And they say that domestic dust, 90% of which is nothing but dead matter shed from human beings, is an important factor in the effective conservation of books. So, best not to dust them fully or frequently, and, ah, poetic and literary justice, we shed ourselves so that our books may remain inviolate, and from the dust of our stories we come into the dust covering our books we return. We return to a library, like all libraries, where we pause as if contemplating the noble ruins of a lost world or the raw materials of a world waiting to be discovered. A library where, every so often, by accident and as if in the aftermath of an accident, disoriented by the shock of impact, someone arrives for whom books, and above all, the accumulation of books, is an unfathomable mystery. Because for many people, books get used up and worn out and it makes no sense to keep them. They take up so much space, you have to store them, they're heavy and oh so dirty, and though no one would say it out loud, they're too cheap to really be something good and good for you. And so, a library that might well provoke its accidental visitors with an odd mixture of respect, unease, and contempt, as if referring to invulnerable and abundant cockroaches, a plague, or a virus, to ask you, but seriously, you've read all these books? Visitors ask this because they don't dare ask themselves the questions they really don't want the answer to. How is it that I've read so few books? How is it that there are barely any books in my house and that most of them are books of photos, some with photos of houses that also have libraries where there are barely any books except books of photos? And why instead of books, books of writing, do I have so many photos of people whom I should presumably love unconditionally but who, to tell the truth, when I think about it a little, after a few drinks seem to be real authentic... They're the same uncouth tourists, never surprised by the quantity of crosses in churches or bills in banks or food in markets, who seem so amiable and pleased and presumably interested, but maintaining a safe distance from the troubling local fauna when, in the next breath, they ask you, What are your books about? And yes, it's for these people that the electronic book has been invented, which, hallelujah and eureka, has succeeded in putting television and print in communion to download and not load down, to acquire and accumulate and never open, never turn a single page. And so that, so pleased with the 2,000 titles that can be held in one hand, the books aren't there all the time in view, they're deafening silence a reminder of all you haven't read and won't ever read. All those horizontal and vertical lines, full color and black and white. And the answer to the previous question is, yes, I have read all of them. Got a problem with that? And, at the same time, the answer is no, because there are books you buy to save for the future, as if you were stashing away food for a great drought, or a new ice age, or cling to or cover yourself with in the pods of a spaceship searching for a new home, while outside everything explodes and fades away and goes out. And that was a reading from The Invented Part, and we want to credit also again Jamie Branch, International Anthem Recording Company, and the cello, of course, was by the great Tamika Reed. Jeremy. Chad, I just I wanted to open up the last part of the show with a question for you. You, know, you were talking about how you acquire, acquire novels. Is there, before something comes to you to open letter uh, to be translated, 
Is there generally some kind of sales figure that they use, or is it just what people consider great literature, or is there a board? I, I don't I don't know how it all works. I was wondering if you could give us like a uh, a quick <clears throat> rundown, or does it just depend? It depends. The um, different books have different stories and situations behind them. We, um, myself and Kaya Stromanis, the editor, we generally make the decisions on what we're going to end up publishing. We have had at various points in time an editorial board that we've um, asked for opinions on different books that were like on the fence about or were interested in talking to them about, but they were generally academics. They work at a different time scale than publishing does where everything's very quick and you don't have a lot of time necessarily to like set up a meeting and that kind of stuff. So we generally make the decisions and they're based in part on being able to construct first and foremost of a love of the book itself. Like if the book is not of interest to us, we can't do it. We're doing 10 books a year. We are the, the amount of time that's invested in those 10 books far exceeds the anything else about them. So if we don't love that book or don't want to be part of the publishing process for that book, then we're just not going to do it. And then it becomes more of like, does this fit the list? Does this fit our sequence? We don't want to end up with like 10 Spanish books all in the same season. We don't want to end up with all males in the same season. We want to make sure that we are diverse and doing like an interesting range of things. Um, the sales part kind of comes last, although it's important in terms of determining how much money you can offer for a book. Um, and know. sometimes, usually you're wrong. Like most of the time, to be honest, you're just wrong. Like you think books are going to sell really well and they sell moderately well. Ones that you're like, well, there's no way this is going to work. And then it works really well. So we've been off in various ways. But because the amounts of money that we're offering for the books are pretty low and pretty much within a, a small bandwidth, um, it's not a huge problem. But we, there are all those things kind of factor in, and especially like someone with Rodrigo Frezan for the invented part, he was published by FSG by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux back in uh, 2007, I think, with the book Kensington Gardens. And I always was interested in him, but didn't think he was available to us. And then sure enough, we were able to publish, acquire the rights to five of his books, I guess six, um, one of them is still being written, um, that we're going to be publishing over the next six, seven years. So it's, it, or no, five, five is the total number that we'll have. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that, that became a much different experience of where we contacted him and we're like, we'd really like to publish your books. And he's like, absolutely. So we were able to make that, That's that awesome. work, but it was a time where I didn't think that we, he would be, I thought he was beyond our means in a lot of ways. And a lot of these books get state support, I think, as you mentioned at the start uh, of the show. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, the, the authors are getting compensated in their, in their home country as well. That is true. That is true. And he's Rodrigo's incredibly popular. Like he is, he was good friends with Blanio to come back to Blanio for a, a minute. And he, um, in Spain and in France and in Germany, and where his books are translated, they sell exceptionally well. And he's very well. He does well for his his writing. He has a good base of, of readership. And in English, they're really just starting out. Yeah. And that's kind of why Invented Parts exciting to me because we have this is part of a, a trilogy. The second volume's out in Spanish, and the third one he's writing now. Um, and there's a there's so much I could say about this because we have started a um, we have a podcast called the three percent podcast and as part of that there's a new sub like mini episodes that come out every week starting this next Thursday that are called the two month review where we're going to be reading an open letter book slowly over two months and talking with guests about those like 40 30 40 pages each week and the invented part is the first one so I've been rereading it writing a lot of posts about it doing recording all these episodes that are like going really deep into this book slowly, 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 rather than the normal way that things operate now where, you know, everything's like a list of like, what was the best book published last Tuesday? And then you never talk about it again. Yeah. We're trying to do the opposite of that. And of course, and we so, beat you to it. We, we got the reading up here first. So, 
You're yes, slacking. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I listened to that first one, uh, Chad. It, oh yeah, it was great. Yeah, the it was you. One? It was Chad, the translator, Will Vanderheiden, and then you had a, you had another guest on, um, who was Brian a, Wood, who's doing. Yeah, Brian's doing all of this this season of the two month review with. He's a writer in residence at the university or something like that. He's just he's just a writer that lives in Rochester. Oh okay, okay. He's um, a really good friend. I, I this is my introduction to Frezan. I had never heard of him before. Um, this book came out, I think, eleven days ago on the sixteenth. Yeah. I I love it. I'm so glad I was introduced to this. Um, I'm pumped that there's a trilogy. Apparently, the trilogy wasn't even planned. I, I heard on no. that on that uh, podcast he finished this book and just couldn't let it go. Um, and it's really nice to hear that he he sells well abroad because. I'd kind of poked around the internet after uh, reading most of the book to see what the buzz was, and, and there's really not a not a ton. Kirkus did a review. Um, yeah. Someone else PW. did a review, yeah. and uh, you know, it, it didn't hit any of the the major um, papers. Although to be honest, those things will still come for us. Like our books are never reviewed on their pub date. Okay. Um, they're usually much after that because they whatever because you know the New York Times and New Yorker whomever has to like pay attention to those those massive Random House books coming out on May sixteenth or whatever and ours can just be reviewed whenever they need to be reviewed so there might still be a lot of I think there are going to be a number of of people writing about it but especially because it's so long <laughs> like very very long yeah, yeah it's um, not going to be right then yeah. well. There was a review of Gesseldom in the San Francisco Gate that I read. It was pretty positive. I was actually excited to see that. One of the things yeah. I liked about this book is I- I'm not a postmodern guy. Um, that's probably going to be the number one adjective that you see about this book in, in papers yeah. is postmodern, which really doesn't mean much to me because mm-hmm. I-, I-, I just didn't get a degree in literature and I, I don't really know what that involves. I've read some of the authors and some of the, the circus tricks are, are cool and interesting, but honestly what grabbed me was were the um all the epigraphs <laughs> introducing the first part. There's like there's like a dozen there's, or two dozen epigraphs. 16. sixteen. Sixteen epigraphs to the to the first part of the book and and a bunch of writers that I like are on there. John Cheever's on there, David Foster Wallace is on there um, musicians are on there. Bob Dylan's on there, um, and and they're they're great quotes and they're sometimes contradictory. And that I was immediately sucked in. Like it was yeah. game over. I knew I was going to read 550 pages when I when I read those epigraphs. But one of the things that was interesting to me is that you know Wallace was really popular, is really popular here, and he he went through a phase that's pretty well known in the literary world where he um, renounced that postmodern technique and that ideology of deconstruction, and and I think there's even like a movement name for it called like the new sincerity or something. Yeah, like that. yeah, and um, yeah, yeah, that lasted about a hot a hot weekend. <laughs> well, I think I think some people are still pretty heavy on that tip. Like the the Dave Eggers train seems to. Barf! Be rolling right I'll over. start a feud with Dave. Dave, Dave, Dave. I hate him. If, uh, you, if you guys want to hang around a coffee shop, be my guest, man. <laughs> but but I, it was cool to see somebody so inspired by Wallace who wasn't still afraid to do his own thing. Um, and he, this book in a lot of ways is kind of about being a living obsolescence. It, 
it follows a writer who's obsessed with writing, who's obsessed with reading, obsessed with literature, and hyper, hyper aware of um, how literature is taking a backseat or has taken a backseat to a lot of other cultural phenomena. I have to tell you two things about, about Frazan that tie into this. Um, one is that he translated Dennis Johnson into Spanish, um, uh, two books by him. And oh. also, this, the invented part, this is, so if you, I don't know how far you are in it, but there are seven distinct sections. Those seven sections were written simultaneously, that he w- had seven different files open. This comes up in an interview that we have online um, in a couple weeks. But uh, he wrote all seven of them on different days. And so each of the seven has a different approach to this, like, writer, the writer's life and, like, right. what the writer did. And the the sort of hook to this of, like, the plot is that the writer, um, who's very literary, very self-involved with literature and reading and the importance of it and how no one cares and he's obsolete and all that, has decided the best thing he can do to go out is to merge with the God particle at, at the uh, sure. Large Hadron Collider, <laughs> yeah. and that, that way <laughs> he can, awesome. like, be, transcend space and time and be, like, the writer of all the writers. So... There is like a, a great like kind of plot device to it, but it's interesting that it's written as like almost like seven tracks or seven channels of like trying to define this. So the postmodernism like in the different sections takes different forms of like mm-hmm. his approach is entirely different in the third section than it is in the first. And they all have like different feels with different motifs that sort of recur across across all seven of them. I'm I'm rereading this book has been the most amazing experience. Like it's it's great to like be able to go back and read it now. Yeah, I love what Jeremy said it. about Gessel Dome. I, I love that feeling when you get done with the book and you, you're like, I know I'm going to read this again and I know it's going to be just as good, if not better. That's that's the invented part for me. Or it's even like when you're taking a break. Or, you know, I go to work and I'm like, oh, I get to read this when I come home and I'm stoked about it. I mean, yeah, maybe two or three books a year. You know, I read probably yeah. three books a week, so we're talking 150 books a year. So maybe three, so three person, well, I'm bad at three percent. <laughs> <laughs> Close enough. Yeah. Close enough. Well, guys, we're running out of time here. I do want to remind everybody that we've been talking to Chad Post. He's the publisher at Open Letter Books. For more information on Open Letter Books, openletterbooks.org is the website. Am I correct in that? Yep. And uh, people can find out information on your publication schedule. They can figure out uh, information on what's coming out and, of course, uh, where you can find these books. If they are not, of course, at your local Chicago Public Library branch. Or independent bookstore. Or independent bookstore. A place like Quimby's, for example. Yes. Here in Chicago. Uh, you are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpen Radio. This has been I-94. We will be back in two weeks, I believe, right, with a fresh episode? Yes, sir. Yes. And uh, Harry Crew's biographer will Harry be on. Harry Crew's biographer will be on. This Love looks like that. a good show. Guys, any final thoughts on books and translation? Hey, I just want to say thanks a lot, Chad. Uh, open Letter has been really great to the show. We'll have you back on for sure. You know, I want to... Uh, we're kind of in our early stages, and we appreciate all the early support. Yes, thank you, Chad. Of course. Thanks, Chad. No problem. Thank you, guys. It's been really fun. Great to talk to you today. This has been I-94. We'll see you in two weeks. is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 10 a.m. Central. This episode featured books published and translated by Open Letter Books, music by Justin Cholowa and Jamie Branch, incidental music from the International Recording Company Archive, both used with kind permission. The episode aired on May 28, 2017.
I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production with readings by Shanna Van Volt, intro and promo voiced by David Green, with music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94, visit lumpenradio.com.